We turn in Scripture to Genesis chapter 49. We begin a new series tonight uh, leading up to Christmas. Uh, Christmas prophecies related to the wise men. So we're looking at three Old Testament prophecies that connect with the wise men. That's also why we were singing the Psalter numbers. We sang, all men shall be in him forever, all men shall be blessed, and all nations hail him, king of kings confessed. And that's seen in the wise men uh, coming from the east, from Gentile nations, coming to Jesus in Bethlehem to give him their worship and their gifts. We're not going to uh, talk about the wise men too much tonight, but the prophecies we look at will kind of build up, and they'll all come together, Lord willing, on Christmas Day when we look at the account of the wise men. Um, We're also not done in our series on glimpses into the heart of Jesus. I intend to continue that series in the new year, and Lord willing, uh, bring that series all the way to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So we haven't forgotten about that series, but because of the season, we're going to look at uh, some passages related to Christmas. Genesis 49. This is the end of Jacob's life, uh, and he's giving a prophecy, giving his blessings upon his children before he dies. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together, and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel." Because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defiledst thou it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret. Unto their assembly, mine honor, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. Cursed be their anger. For it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp, a young lion. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. That's a picture of prosperity. So prosperous that even the vines are growing up on the side of the road so that you can tie your donkey to the vine. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea 
and he shall be for an haven of ships, and his border shall be unto Zidon. Issachar is a strong ass, couching down between two burdens. And he saw that rest was good, and the land that it was pleasant, and bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant unto tribute. Dan shall judge his people. The word Dan means judge. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path, that biteth the horse heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Gad means a troop. Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. Out of Asher, his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a hind, a deer, let loose. He giveth goodly words. Joseph is a fruitful bow, even a fruitful bow by a well, whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him, and shot at him, and hated him, but his bow abide, uh, abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, even by the God of thy father, who shall help thee, and by the Almighty, who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, and blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. Jacob has many blessings to give, and especially to Joseph. That's what he's saying. The the blessings that Jacob has to give have excelled above the blessings of those who've come before him, and then especially on Joseph. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him, that was separate from his brethren. Benjamin shall raven as a wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is it that their fathers spake unto them, and blessed them. Every one according to his blessing, he blessed them. And he charged them, and said unto them, I am to be gathered unto my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite for a possession of a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The purchase of the field and of the cave that is therein was from the children of Heth. And when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. A lot of challenging things in this chapter, a lot of blessings here that might be murky for us to understand, but our focus this evening is just on verse 10. That's the text, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. 
Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, what we have here in Genesis 49 is a very solemn occasion. What we have here is a man on his deathbed. And not just any man, but Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the church, on his deathbed. He is blind. He is nearly com- uh, he, he is sick. He is nearly completely blind. And he is ready to finish his earthly pilgrimage and to be gathered unto his people. And as he's about to die, he calls for his twelve sons to gather around him so that he might speak his last words to them and upon them, really. After these last words, Jacob can gather his feet into his bed and he can yield up the ghost and be gathered unto his people. And that's exactly what happens in the very end of this chapter. But these last words that Jacob speaks unto his sons are no ordinary words. What Jacob says here in Genesis 49 is prophecy. In fact, if you would look at all the details of this chapter, it's an astounding prophecy that is marvelously fulfilled in the subsequent history as the the people of Israel enter into the land of Canaan. You see one prophecy after another being fulfilled. As we read in verse 1, Jacob prophesies what shall befall his sons in the last days. Jacob isn't just predicting things here. He's not just speculating about the future, but Jacob prophesies so that the words here are, are really God's words being spoken through Jacob. And as Jacob prophesies, and as he must have experienced that he knew he was prophesying, we see that Jacob has something to say about each one of his sons. And yet when you read through the chapter, it becomes plain that there's one son that especially stands out. After talking about Reuben and Simeon and Levi, not having pleasant things to say about them, in verse 8, he says, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. In verse 9, Judah is compared to a lion, while the other sons are compared to an ass or a serpent or a deer or a wolf. Judah is compared to a lion, the king of the beasts. And then in verse 10, we read the words of the text for this evening. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. The reason we look at this text this evening is because this text is messianic. What we have here is a prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. And what we have here is not just words of Jacob, but we have a promise from Jehovah God himself. Shiloh shall come. He shall come from Judah, and he shall be the one exalted as king forever, and unto him shall the gathering of the nations be. That's what we look at this evening, this prophecy concerning the coming of our king, King Shiloh. And we do that because of the season that is upon us. We celebrate Christmas time and the coming of Jesus, and as I said, we also do this because this text also speaks about the wise men uh, as it speaks about the gathering of the people. We'll look at that in the sermon this evening. We take as our theme, King Shiloh and the gathering of the people. 
We look at that theme under three points. First, we look at the amazing prophecy. We make sure we understand the prophecy itself. Then second, we look at the wonderful fulfillment as we look throughout the rest of the Scriptures. And then third, we look at the comforting significance. The text states, "...the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be." Now, one of the chief parts of this prophecy is that reference to a scepter. And so that's where we start as we look at this prophecy, the scepter of Judah. Now, I think you children know what a scepter is. A scepter is an ornamental rod, a kind of a short stick that a a king would hold in his hand. Maybe it would be covered in gold. Uh, Maybe it would be bedecked with precious jewels, but it would be a, a short kind of rod that a king would hold in his hand. And with the king holding that scepter in his hand, everyone would know who is the king. That scepter was a picture, an emblem of power and authority. Jacob and his twelve sons living in Egypt at this time, having King Pharaoh as their king, they would have known what a scepter was. We can imagine that Pharaoh wielded a scepter. A scepter is a picture of kingship. Not only is there the scepter that is mentioned, but the text also speaks of a lawgiver. Now, what is a lawgiver? We know what a scepter is, but what is a lawgiver? Well, perhaps we could translate that word lawgiver more simply with with these words, the ruler's staff. The word lawgiver there in the text refers to the staff of a ruler. What we have here in the text is Hebrew parallelism, where the second half of the line repeats the idea of the first half of the line, but it's not just repetition, it's building on the idea and expanding the idea of the first half of the line. So, so we have this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, we understand the scepter being held in the king's hand, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. That's parallelism, and yet it's expanding on the idea of kingship. But the idea is essentially the same. So what is a lawgiver? Well, as I said, it's the staff of a ruler. Uh, It's the same kind of thing as a, a scepter, except instead of being short, the staff was longer, so that Uh, When the king was standing up, the staff was something that he could rest on the ground. And then when the king would actually sit on his throne, maybe the scepter would be in his hand, and then the, the lawgiver, the ruler's staff, would be resting between his legs, between his feet, maybe resting against his thigh. In fact, when I think of the imagery here, I actually think of a shepherd. Think of the figure of a shepherd king, a shepherd Psalm 23, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Those are the tools of a shepherd, having the rod in one hand and a staff in the other hand. And that's the picture of a king, too, ruling over his sheep, ruling over his people. He's got a scepter in the one hand and the lawgiver in the other hand. So a king in the olden days, especially if he was a very majestic king, he would have these two kinds of scepters. One hand, he would have the scepter. And in the other hand, he would have the lawgiver, the staff. Now, both the scepter and the staff, the lawgiver, are pictures of kingship. That's the point. That's the emphasis of the text. But as I said, we don't just have repetition here. We have an expansion of the idea. 
Think of a scepter. What's the scepter a picture of? Well, the scepter is a picture of dominion and power. With the scepter, we have a picture of the king conquering his enemies. Like Psalm 2, thou shalt dash thy enemies with a rod of iron. That's how the the king dashes his enemies. Or think of a shepherd using his shepherd's rod to club a bear or to club a lion, fighting against the enemy. That's the picture of the scepter. And then, in his other hand, you have the lawgiver. The, the shepherd's staff. And just like a shepherd would use that staff to uh, pasture his flock, to, to deliver them out of the ditch and to, to lead them in the right way, so the king's staff represented the same idea. Not conquering his enemies, but ruling his people. Exercising authority over them and exercising protection over them. That's why it's called the lawgiver. To give a law to his people. Shepherding and ruling them and leading them. That's the idea here. And these two things go together. With the one, you have the king revealing his power to conquer his enemies. And with the other, the king revealing his care and protection over his people. Ruling them with a good and righteous law. And both these things emphasize kingship. Now, looking just at that first part of the prophecy, uh, we see how amazing this prophecy is. Congregation, just consider where we are. We're in Genesis chapter 49. Who is Judah at this time? And who is Jacob? And and what is this family at this time in history? They're nothing. They, They are nobodies in the sight of men. Here is Jacob and his 12 sons and their wives and their children in a strange and foreign land. They're not even in their own home country. They're the land, they're in the land of Goshen in Egypt. And here they are, a family of lowly shepherds, despised in the eyes of the Egyptians. They are lowly farmers. They don't have any royal blood in them, do they? Oh yes, we think back of Abraham and and Abraham's honorable figure and position. Abraham only had one son, Isaac, and Isaac only had uh, Jacob and Esau. But how small this family is. And now Jacob is prophesying that Judah's going to hold a mighty scepter and he's going to have a lawgiver in his hand. Judah, who's a shepherd, tending to sheep, he's going to have a kingly rod and a kingly staff in his hand. And he would have the kind of power to crush his enemies and, and rule over a nation. Not only that, but consider who is Judah, right? Judah wasn't the firstborn. Reuben was the firstborn. Judah wasn't the one who saved the whole family from death and starvation. That was Joseph. And Judah, Judah didn't have a clean record among the brothers either, did he? Judah was the one who ended up committing fornication with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, when Tamar dressed as a harlot, and Judah was looking for a harlot. And not only that, but consider the language. A scepter, the scepter, shall not depart. From Judah. As if Judah's already a king. As if Judah's already holding a scepter. There's no doubt about these things. That's a striking prophecy. Whatever lay ahead in the future. You might have 400 years of slavery in Egypt. That was already prophesied. You might have the land of Canaan. A land filled with giants. The children of Anak and powerful cities. 
You might have Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar march against Jerusalem and utterly destroy the city and tear down the walls and bring the people into captivity. And yet, the prophecy is, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. There will always be a king. There will always be that that royalty in Judah. The scepter and the ruler's staff will not be destroyed. Kingdoms will rise and fall. Pharaoh's kingdom in Egypt, that will rise and fall. The kingdoms in Canaan will rise and fall. Babylon will rise and fall. Persia will rise and fall. But the scepter of Judah and the ruler's staff, the lawgiver of Judah, Judah's kingdom, that shall not depart. That kingdom will not depart until Shiloh comes. That's an amazing prophecy. Out of this little family would arise a great kingdom. Out of this weak man, a sinner no less, would come forth powerful kings with rule and dominion. A prophecy this is that reveals not only the sovereignty of God, but that also reveals the sovereign grace of our God. There's nothing that makes this family any different from any other nation. There's nothing that makes this family any better than any other family. But what you have here with this prophecy is God once again showing His sovereign particular grace. You, Judah, a farmer, a despised shepherd, and a weak sinner besides, but the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. This is an amazing prophecy. But we're only only halfway through it. Look at the second half of the text. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Well, what what do these things mean? Well, there have been a few different interpretations regarding this language, especially that language, until Shiloh come. Some think that the word Shiloh here refers to the town in Canaan. Remember where the tabernacle was kept uh, for some years during the time of the judges, the town of Shiloh? And if that's the case, if, if this is a reference to the town of Shiloh, then we should read the verse, The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Judah comes to Shiloh. But that seems like quite arbitrary. There's no uh, event in Scripture where you speak of Judah coming to Shiloh in any specific and significant way. Uh, So this seems kind of arbitrary. And besides, in the second half of this prophecy, it says, unto him shall the gathering of the peoples be, meaning that Shiloh must be a person. Shiloh is not a town, but a person. Unto him shall the gathering of the people be. So uh, that doesn't seem to be the right interpretation. And then others think that the word Shiloh should be understood this way, to whom it belongs, And if that's how we are to understand the verse, then it should be translated this way. The scepter shall not depart uh, from Judah until he comes to whom it belongs. And that makes the word Shiloh not a name, but a phrase. And that interpretation is also uh, dismissed as a rather arbitrary interpretation. It seems that quite clearly the word Shiloh here is is a proper name referring to the coming Messiah. That's how the King James interprets it. It capitalizes that word Shiloh. And this is how the vast majority of interpreters have understood the text throughout history. 
And the word Shiloh, the word itself, comes from a word which means to be at rest, to be without care, to be relaxed, to enjoy peace. And so the word Shiloh, the name Shiloh, means rest giver. That's the idea. Giver of peace, giver of rest. So this coming Messiah, the seed of the woman who was promised to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, this Messiah would be a king with a scepter in one hand and a staff in the other hand, and he would be one who would give peace to his people. That's the significance of the name Shiloh. Or to go ahead to the prophecy of Isaiah, to use the language of Isaiah, this Shiloh will be the prince of peace, which is another messianic title that we commemorate, that we reflect upon at Christmas time. The prince of peace. That's the same idea here. And then we read at the end of the verse, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Well, what does that mean? Well, that word gathering can also be translated this way, perhaps better, to to get the point across maybe a little better, obedience. And unto him shall the obedience of the people be. That's why they gather to him. They, They gather to the king to give him homage and give him their obedience. Unto him shall the gathering and the obedience of the people be be. And so the reference is to the fact that this Messiah, King Shiloh, would be one who has the rule and dominion, not merely over the family of Jacob, not merely over Israel and the Jews, but he would have the rule and dominion over many people. Peoples, the the word people is actually in the plural. Peoples, nations, Many tongues, many tribes will be gathered unto Shiloh and will give him their heartfelt obedience. And here you hear, again, the prophecy that God gave to Abraham. You will be a father of many nations. Your name is no more Abraham, but Abraham, a father of many nations. Well, you read those words, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering and obedience of the peoples be, And then you say again, what an amazing prophecy this is. Judah's scepter and Judah's dominion shall never be taken away, shall never be cut off until the king of peace, the prince of peace and rest himself comes. And when Shiloh comes, not only will he be the king over Judah or over Jacob or over the Israelites, but his kingdom will be gathered from all the peoples of the earth. And all the peoples of the earth will give him their homage and worship and their obedience. They will serve him. And he will wield the scepter and he will wield the law for his people. Now let's again step back and remember where we are, beloved. We are in the book of Genesis. Does Jacob even know that the promised Messiah is going to be a king? He doesn't know about King David. He doesn't know about King Solomon. He doesn't know those details. He doesn't know that the the land of Canaan will be divided into 12 tribes. Jacob is standing at the very beginning of Israel's history as a nation. Indeed, when Jacob speaks these words, he's on his deathbed in Egypt, speaking to 12 ordinary sons, from a human point of view, shepherds, ordinary shepherds, who are listening intently to his last words. 
yes, Jacob does know the promise that God gave to Abraham. I will cause you to be a great nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in you. And God appeared to Jacob himself many times through his earthly life, reassuring Jacob of his faithfulness to his covenant promises, the the, the covenant I made, the promise I made with Abraham, and to Isaac I made also with you. But what comes out of Jacob's mouth here in Genesis 49 is something that he himself would not have been able to fully grasp. The promised seed of the woman would be a king. That comes to light in this verse. The people of God will take on the form of a kingdom. That too is implied in this verse. And the king would come from the tribe of Judah. That too is implied in this verse. This is an amazing prophecy. It's an amazing prophecy that is going to be wonderfully fulfilled throughout the rest of Scripture. Now, this prophecy is going to find its typical fulfillment in the Old Testament types and shadows, especially when you look at King David and King Solomon. Even before King King David and King Solomon, from Genesis 49... Through the time of the judges and through the time of, 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 to the time of Saul, Judah did have a scepter. Judah, there was royalty in Judah's loins. That's even spoken of in the text. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah already has a scepter. There's royalty in the blood, in the line of Judah. And now, Maybe Judah didn't know that so clearly at this time, or Jacob, this is something new, but it's something that God gives a hint at, God, God hints at this a little bit more throughout um, this time period from Genesis to the time of the kings. For example, in Numbers 24, verse 17, uh, you have this language of, of the scepter, That's coming from Israel. Numbers 24 verse 17. At the end of Israel's wilderness wanderings. You have the false prophet Balaam. And he's supposed to speak a curse against Israel. And and God in his sovereignty causes him to speak a blessing instead of a curse. And he says in Numbers 24 verse 17. I shall see him but not now. I shall behold him but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So, so Balaam is, is giving the people an idea, God is giving the people this idea that there will be a king coming out of Israel. By the way, Lord willing, we're going to look at that passage next time. There shall be a star rising out of Jacob. And of course, what did the wise men see uh, as they were traveling to Jerusalem and to Bethlehem? Then in Deuteronomy 17, verse 15, Moses tells the people that When they receive a king, like the other nations around them, they shall in any wise set him king over them whom the Lord has chosen. So Moses tells them pretty bluntly, you will have a king who holds a scepter in his hand. And the one who would be the first to hold the scepter in his hand would be David from the tribe of Judah. Of course, there was Saul who was the first king of Israel, but he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was not from the tribe of Judah. This prophecy does not pertain to him. He was not the man of God's choosing. He was the man of the people's choosing. But David, the son of Jesse, from the town of Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah, 
He would be the great Old Testament king. And he would be the one especially who wields the scepter, that rod of iron. He would be the one, the the mighty king who, who dashes his enemies to pieces so that through David, God would expand the borders of Israel so that they stretched from Egypt all the way to the Euphrates River. David was the one who even conquered Jerusalem and set up his kingdom in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. David would be that shepherd boy from the line of Judah who would be made a king having the scepter and the lawgiver in his hand. And then after David, you have his son Solomon. And if David is especially the one where you see the scepter being wielded, Solomon, his his son, is the one where you see especially the lawgiver being wielded. Solomon not crushing his enemies, but Solomon ruling over the people, giving them a reign of peace and a reign of prosperity, ruling over them as judge, giving wisdom, right? Solomon, the wise king, to rule and judge this, thy so great a people. That's what he prayed for. So that's where this prophecy is typically fulfilled. David and Solomon. But these men, they were not the ultimate fulfillment. They didn't obtain perfect dominion and perfect peace. They were but pictures. And even the whole physical kingdom of Israel and Judah, that was just a picture. That was a type and a shadow. And that that needs to show itself to be but a type and shadow. So what you see through the rest of Old Testament history is, is that type and shadow kind of fading away more and more. You see that kingdom of peace in King Solomon's days, suddenly right after him, being divided, split up into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And then the kingdom of Israel scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire, completely lost to history and annihilated. And then you have the kingdom of Judah with with its poor and many wicked kings and also some good kings, but then taken into Babylonian captivity. And they're there for 70 years. They come back, but when they come back, there's no throne anymore. There's no king sitting anymore on the throne of Judah. And it seems that that as you go throughout Old Testament history, this, this prophecy is, is no longer being fulfilled. It seems that the scepter did depart from Judah. There's no longer a king sitting on the throne of Judah after Babylonian captivity. But what we need to say, we understand, what we need to say is that the scepter was there all the time. It may not be a scepter that was exercising its, its power, it may not be a king who, who always had a throne to sit on. And that was certainly the case during those 400 years of darkness from Malachi to the beginning of the New Testament time period where, where the kingdoms of the earth had their way with Judah and God's people. You could say with Judah's last king, Zedekiah, when he was uh, taken captive and when he had his demise, the, the scepter fell to the ground. And for years it needed to be picked up. And it, it, was, it was lying there on the ground. And yet, as it was lying there, the, the line of Judah continued to be preserved. Going from Judah through David and Solomon, always leading ahead to King Shiloh. That, that royal line was being preserved throughout all this history. And that's exactly the significance of this prophecy, even for the Old Testament saints. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. You always will have a king. You will have that kingly line that continues until Shiloh come. Even when the kingdom has fallen apart, the scepter will continue until 
Shiloh comes to pick it up. So we find the ultimate fulfillment of this amazing prophecy in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament history points us to Christ with all its types and shadows. And you have the fulfillment of it in Christ and in His birth. There you have Jesus. And who is Jesus? As He's born in Bethlehem. What was Bethlehem? The royal city of David. In the tribe of Judah. And you have Jesus with the Virgin Mary and Joseph as his parents. Mary and Joseph, and who were they? They were from the royal line of David, from the tribe of Judah. So that there in Bethlehem, on that cold wintry night, you have the birth of the king, the birth of King Shiloh himself. There in that manger, in that poor manger, you have the lion of the tribe of Judah being born. Coming to earth exactly so that he might pick up the scepter once again and establish his kingdom. And notice this. Already there in Bethlehem, we're going to see it on Christmas Day more clearly, but already there in Bethlehem, you see the last part of this text being fulfilled as well. And unto him shall the gathering of the people Because what do you see in that little town of Bethlehem? A few months after Jesus is born, maybe a year after Jesus is born, when he's in the house of Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem, what do you see? You see the wise men having made their journey from the east. Gentiles, not from Judah, not from the Israelites, but, but from the peoples of the earth, from the nations, gathering themselves to Bethlehem at the house of Joseph and Mary, in order to give their obedience and their worship and their service to King Shiloh. You remember what they asked King Herod when they first came to Jerusalem? Where is he that is born King of the Jews? We're here to worship him. We're here to gather unto him and give him our obedience. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, the coming of King Shiloh and the gathering of the peoples. Well, we know that simply being born as king of the Jews, simply being born from the tribe of Judah would not be enough for Jesus. Because he's not just king, he is King Shiloh. He's the king of peace. He's the rest giver. He's the lawgiver. And he's not just the king of earthly peace or earthly prosperity, but he is the rest giver, the, the king who gives true rest, true peace. And it's exactly through the cross, through his earthly ministry and through his cross especially, that he would establish true peace and establish his kingship and his kingdom forever. There on the cross, you see Jesus wielding the scepter. There on the cross, you see Jesus doing battle against his and our enemies. There you see Jesus having his hand against the neck of his enemies. The powers of sin and death and the grave. And there on the cross with his power, you see Jesus crushing the head of Satan and defeating his enemies. And there on the cross, you see Jesus not only wielding the scepter, crushing the head of Satan and defeating his enemies, but there on the cross, you see Jesus also obtaining rest and peace for his people, wielding the shepherd's staff in a sense. Because there on the cross, he is the shepherd 
the kingly shepherd is laying down his life also for his sheep, bearing the wrath of God as their representative and as their head and as their king. And through his power and through his blood, he obtains peace for his people. And and he also gives that peace to his people. True peace with God, giving them the forgiveness of sins, giving them to have a righteous standing before God. And now what does Jesus do as, as the king, Shiloh? Well, he establishes his dominion of peace in our hearts. He writes his law upon our hearts and he gives us spiritual peace and spiritual prosperity. He gives us friendship with the Lord. And there you see Jesus wielding the scepter and wielding the lawgiver. And what have we seen since Jesus' birth, since the time that the wise men gathered in, in Bethlehem to bow before the king? What have we seen? Well, we, well, we've seen peoples, many peoples, not just the wise men, but many Gentiles from all nations, tribes, and tongues gathering unto Jesus, gathering unto him that they might give him their obedience and that they might also enjoy his reign, putting themselves, being brought under his law and, and uh, enjoying his rule in their hearts. Unto him shall the gathering of the peoples be. And, and that's continuing throughout the New Testament. And that's, that's our reality as well. We are with those wise men being drawn by God's irresistible grace so that we gather together unto Jesus and we give him our obedience. And that's how this prophecy is being fulfilled, even today. This scepter was never merely an earthly scepter. It was a spiritual scepter, a spiritual dominion, and a spiritual peace. And David and Solomon and their kingdoms, they were but types and shadows. The true scepter was always the spiritual reign and dominion found in Jesus Christ. And so we have a wonderful fulfillment of this prophecy. It's an amazing prophecy. It's a wonderful fulfillment. And there's also a comforting significance. First, a comforting significance for God's people in the Old Testament and then also for us today. For Jacob and his sons. As Jacob's lying there on his deathbed, or at least sitting at the side of his bed, what a comforting word this must have been. Jacob was soon about to die. Joseph, their leader in Egypt, is going to die in the very next chapter. And Judah and his brothers are going to be pilgrims. Their their children and their children's children, they're all going to be pilgrims and strangers in a foreign land, the land of Egypt. And you turn the page over just a few more pages and you see how life becomes so very hard for this family and these people, for God's church. Slavery and bondage under the cruel tyranny of Pharaoh. And yet they had this prophecy and this promise and they would have the assurance that that God's covenant promises had not been forgotten and they would not be forgotten. They would have a king, the king of peace himself, King Shiloh, who would save them from this bondage, who would save them from spiritual bondage to sin and darkness. That was comfort for them. And for God's people through the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, as they read the Torah, as they looked, or, or the Pentateuch, as they looked at the first five books of the Bible, right? The king himself had to write these books out by hand so that he would know the word of God. And what a comforting word this must have been for God's people. 
Yes, even when King Nebuchadnezzar destroys the kingdom of Judah. Yes, even during those 400 years of darkness from the prophet Malachi to the New Testament, God's people knew if they knew their scriptures, they would know because this kind of prophecy would would pop out from the page. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. What an encouragement. What comfort for God's people clinging to the promises of God's word. And what a comforting promise. And what a comforting this prophecy is for you and me today too. This doesn't just end with the first coming of Christ. It continues on. First, we know that Shiloh has come. And we know that in his ascension into heaven, King Shiloh has been given all authority and power and dominion over heaven and earth. And he rules over all, crushing his enemies, gathering his people unto himself, and giving them spiritual peace and spiritual prosperity. In this connection, we must understand the word until. Until Shiloh come. It doesn't mean that once Shiloh comes, well then the scepter is going to depart or vanish. We understand that, I hope. The word until signifies when Shiloh comes, then this scepter will have its full sway and its full power until Shiloh come. And when he comes, the scepter will have its full sway. So that's comforting for us today, knowing King Shiloh sits on the throne, but it's also comfort for us as we look ahead to the future, as we ourselves, just like God's people in the Old Testament, are looking ahead to the future. Because we know Shiloh has come once and he's coming again the second time. Because this prophecy has not been completely fulfilled. Because as we see around about us, the enemies of Christ still wage war against him and against his church. And even as we get closer to the end, even as we get into those darker days, kind of paralleling the Old Testament history, those 400 years of darkness, even as we enter into darker days, it will seem to God's people that there is no scepter being wielded for them on their behalf. And these will be dark days. But then God's people will do the same thing God's people have always done. They've lived by faith. And they've gone to God's word and they've trusted the promises. The, pro, the, the scepter will not depart from Judah. The scepter will not depart from Jesus Christ, the lion from the tribe of Judah, until he comes again. And when he comes again, the scepter won't be dropped or vanished. But then he will conquer all his and our enemies. He will dash all his enemies with a rod of iron. And then he will bring his people into, his, into the fullness of his kingdom. And we will have the law written on our hearts fully and perfectly. And then we will enjoy his reign of eternal peace and eternal prosperity in heavenly glory in the new heavens and new earth under the perfect rule and the, the immediate rule of King Shiloh. So we're doing the same thing today that God's people have done throughout history. Taking a verse like this, and we see how it's fulfilled in Christ's first coming, and we celebrate that at Christmas time. And then we also take it as we go forward, looking ahead to his second coming. And this is our comfort, and this is our peace, knowing that God, who's fulfilled his prophecies, 
will fulfill them perfectly. Let that be our peace in this Christmas season. Let, let that be what this Christmas season also does for us, seeing who our King is, seeing the hope and the salvation that is found in Him. And let that be what we celebrate in this Christmas season, the faithfulness of our God in the promises that He gives. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that this Christmas season might be a time when our faith is strengthened, that we might see in a newer and deeper way how Thou dost fulfill Thy word perfectly. And if Thou hast fulfilled Thy word so perfectly in Christ's first coming, we know by faith that the fulfillment of that word in His second coming will be indeed most glorious and worthy of all our celebration and festivity. We pray that we might enjoy that, and that this Christmas season might spur us on to look to Christ and His second coming, the coming of King Shiloh. And we pray that King Shiloh might rule in our hearts more and more. Bless this preaching to our hearts and to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.